Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Brings me great pleasure to introduce a man I was introduced to. Actually, I just noticed yesterday it was seven years ago. Uh, who's doing amazing work in the world of youth—not just youth football, youth soccer, but actually youth personal development, which is something that I'm really excited to be diving deeper into today. Welcome, Tom Byer. Well, hello, Ian, my good friend uh, down under. Um, it's great to be here and. Uh, Finally, on your 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 show, so to speak, uh, we talk once in a while. But this is uh, this is an honor to be your official guest. Uh, it's an honor for me too, mate. Um, one of the things that we chatted about earlier in the week is that you're really passionate about the impact that football can have, and you want to be able to show the footballing world, the soccer world, that there is a different way to do things because there's a lot of misinformation out there that you know from all the years of study and working in this field for what, over 30 years that there are other ways. And what I love now is that you're actually getting scientific proof of the positive impact that this has not only on the child, but on families and communities as well. So tell us why you're so passionate about this, Tom. Yeah, well, you know, I've been a, a, a technical coach most of my career, and for the folks watching out there that don't know what a technical coach is, basically focusing on improving individual players' technical skills. Uh, football is an extremely technical sport, which unfortunately in some ways takes a ridiculous amount of practice to become good at it. But that's what I focused in. That's what I really kind of carved my niche in. Um, you know, I'm coming to you from Tokyo, Japan here, and this is where I've spent you know, 35 plus years uh, career as a technical coach. But I also have kind of an unusual skill set because I've done a lot of things. I, I kind of call it the, the football ecosystem. Um, so I understand that quite well. And, and I started realizing that the, the football world, so to speak, approaches development um, in, in, in a very coach, player, player, coach, um, traditional sense. And I started realizing the impacts that culture, families, environments played on developing some of the best players in the world and started realizing, you know, this is this is this if there is a kind of a, a secret sauce for development that it's been misunderstood and the role that parents play. So I started delving into and it, it really comes from real life experiences because uh, I've got kids my own. Um, but I was always working with other people's kids, 
But it wasn't until I had my own kids that some of the light bulbs started going on. And I'm, I'm a very kind of inquisitive person to begin with. So I started really trying to figure out, well, you know, what is the football world getting wrong? Because out of 211 uh, member associations in FIFA, only eight have won a World Cup tournament. So why is there only a handful of countries that have a lock on it? So that's where how I started to kind of approach it. And then I started realizing and opening up a whole new world, um, like you were just saying, that connection between parents and families and, and how that kind of interacts and, and helps to develop kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of your uh, protégés on here, uh, Isan, just uh, chimed in. Cheers, Isan. Um, doing awesome work in this space in Australia, uh, here in Sydney and Melbourne now, I believe. Um, so I, I also know that this is something that one of the reasons you are so passionate about it is because you're actually delivering a service that wasn't available to you as a child. As a, as a gifted footballer, there's so many of these skills that you know and you, and you probably wonder as well, like what the impact could have been on you as a player if you'd had those skills. So tell us a little bit about that and your upbringing around football um, and how you did develop without any, of, any structure really. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm originally from New York City, um, from New York, but lived upstate in New York since I was around 10 years of age. And I got started um, like many kids do, and that is from my brother. I have an older brother, older sister. My brother started playing, and our family's best friend's family had five boys, the Schaefer family. And they had five boys and, and, and they were incredible athletes too. But the older brother, Bernie, Bernie Schaefer, he was a really, really good soccer player. We refer to soccer, right, in the States. So all the boys played. So that's how I got involved in it. And, um, you know, I was pretty good uh, when I started out. I did play baseball as well, just like most kids in America and maybe in Australia as well, play multi-sports. But I, I, I started gravitating to soccer because I was pretty good at it. And also because, you know, my, my, my brother and the friends were always playing. So that was kind of the start, but I never really kind of formally had a, a, a decent coach until I got to high school. And then it really wouldn't be until really until college as well. So I didn't really have, um, you know, someone that was really trying, it was really kind of that organic raw, go out, play pickup games. I remember we used to jump over the fence to the little league baseball field that I would walk about you know, two kilometers to, to get to when I was a little kid. Um, but it was really, that's where I, that's where I really started to fall in love with the, uh, the game. So it was very unstructured, no organization, no real coaches around, but you know, I didn't know what to practice. I was so crazy about wanting to become a professional player. In those days, what we used to focus on were two things was juggling the ball. And if you had a wall, you just knocked the ball on the wall. But now I've got this like, this like enormous amount of of knowledge and content and exercise one player one ball so many things you can literally do with a ball but i didn't understand it back then and many of us didn't um whereas now i can do it by design and i think that's why maybe i'm pretty passionate about it because i know I, the, the 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 typical kid that i want to help is the kid that's not good the kid that's behind because i i can help improve that kid you know, we have everybody wants to work with the best kids. They want to work with the elite kids, of course, because they're very easy to work with. And we can put our fingers under our you know, chest and, and say, hey, that's my boy. I, I developed that player. Right. 
but I can see the biggest, you know, jump in a player's level by working with the least developed players. And they're the ones that push the best players to become better. That's how you close the elite player pool gap is by making the best and the least developed and closing that space there. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just getting tingles thinking about that because I think of how I adopted like your methodology into my coaching when I was coaching young kids. The confidence that a child gets when they can move a ball around and understand that they are more skillful than what they think, that does wonders not for them as a football but as them as a person. And it it's really is amazing to see. And I love what you said there about that, like the love of the ball. And I think that's something that, and I've heard again, I've heard Isan talk about this as well, is so important. It's not necessarily the love of the game. That will come. But when you have that relationship with the ball and you have it from, from a really early age, right, this is part of what you talk about. Football starts at home. Then it changes everything in terms of their development. Yes, as a footballer, but as we're finding out and you are got these guys studying the science of the difference that makes to them as a person. So tell us a little bit more about, yeah, football or soccer starting from home from as young as what, two, three? Yeah, it can really, it really, it really starts out as fun play, playtime with your kids, right? And what happens, I, I, that's what happened with myself. I mean, being a technical coach, working with other people's kids all the time, it wasn't until I had my own kids. And then I basically, set up my environment. I literally have these balls still all around my house. So I put these little balls in around my home. I was doing an event for Adidas. This is a true story. This is the the, the history of, of how it all came about. And I was signing autographs and I was giving them away to kids at Adidas we had selected. And literally the proverbial ball fell right in my lap. I remember holding it that day, signing these autographs and thinking, wow, small ball. My first son had just started walking Kaito small foot. So I asked the Adidas guys, literally while I was there, I said, Hey guy in Japanese, Hey, can you send me a couple of these balls to my house? Well, much to my behest, a huge box, like a, a case of these balls arrived, like 20 balls, 25 balls. And I thought, well, what, what am I going to do with those balls? What, what, you know? So I went and I put two or three balls in every room. And again, because I'm a technical coach, I knew the importance of holding the ball, ball mastery, ball touch, ball feeling, as we say. So I discouraged kicking and I encouraged this ball, more of this ball manipulation. I did it off of modeling. I did it inside the house. And then I started to see amazing things, you know, unravel right in, in front of me, my eyes. More interest in the ball. My son just more engaged, more focused more disciplined when you fall mastery feelings i could see also that it was kind of controlling his emotions because kids are very chaotic and they'll run around and 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 chase after something but i see this now i'm telling you all the things like i sound like the 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 veteran scientist but i wasn't back then so i could see things were happening but i couldn't really explain it like i'm explaining it today yeah and it really wasn't until um, I was very fortunate and we were writing the book called Soccer or Football Starts at Home. And, and I caught the attention of uh, Dr. John Rady from Harvard Medical School, who is one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists on planet Earth. And this guy is so intelligent. Every time I talk to him, I'm taking notes. And so I, he had heard about my work in China, although I live in Tokyo. He was doing some work in China. So anyway, it culminated in a phone call. 
and uh, it was about an hour or more. And then I took, I dropped the autumn that I was writing a book and he said, wow, I'd love to read it. So we sent him the manuscript and he liked it so much. And we had him, he wrote the forward and the afterward. And so that was so important because then I started understanding the science behind what was happening inside my home. And, you know, for some of the viewers, basically the home is considered a very safe, protective environment away from ridicule. So a child can kind of do whatever they want. It's a safe environment, right? Um, where there's no pressure to really succeed. But here's what I call the gift to the parents. And that is, is that the parents understanding of a child's need for parental approval, for parental attention, for parental praise, the child's always seeking these. And that in turn creates a chemical electrical process in the child, which is emotions. So when you can create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So when I started showing these videos to Dr. Rady and to others, they started kind of explaining to me what the science was. So now fast forward, and this just gives us, you know, a whole new tool in our tool chest or our toolbox to be able to go out and explain to parents, well, why is this good for kids? Um, and then we can get into it a little bit more, but then there's even a lot more neuroscience in it about what's happening in the brain. And I just yeah. become fascinated in it. And I started to really put football development under a microscope um, and try to learn as much as I can. Um, and then, you know, anytime you, you, you know, it's funny because anytime you have something new, especially in the realm of science, it kind of goes through, kind of, kind of goes through three stages. First, it's either ridiculed. Second, it's vehemently opposed. And then third, it becomes self-evident. As fact, everybody says, well, this is how we do it. And I think we're getting kind of towards that self-evident. Um, and it's been because I've, I've been really literally globetrotting around the world, putting this whole philosophy, this premise in front of the world's best, um, you know, clubs, professional clubs, uh, federations, confederations, in the media. I've put myself in, uh, you know, I, I think I've, I've put myself under a, quite a bit of scrutiny, but the, the good news is, is that it's, it's been great. And I've been welcomed and embraced by the biggest and the best in the world. And, you know, there's nothing better in life than, you know, especially in your profession, where you're basically, you know, being accepted by the experts, and and that's where yeah, we're, we're at. Yeah, brilliant. And and for those who just want to see some really cool visuals, I'll get you to send me the links to your sons at those young ages. And if you look at the skill development, like like those videos are all the evidence you need to see the development if they're doing this all the time. And I'm, there's one video where it might be your youngest son at a really young age yeah. doing things with a ball that most adults would be yeah, I know talking about it. it's when my son's show he was three years old and the funny, yeah. funniest part of this Ian is a majority of the videos were just made took my you know I put the it was the father hat on not not the coach's hat so I did it just as the father you know doing it and I caught some amazing footage that I use now all over the world um, yeah. but yeah and, and what happens is too again because I had those videos and I put it into my presentation and I'm showing it to guys like Dr. John Rady and some other experts, they started explaining, well, this is you're, you're developing free will. Well, what does free will exactly mean? Well, that means when a kid believes they own their own free time and they own their own fun. And then it becomes very intrinsic, right? What they're rewarded yeah. is that, that, that satisfaction from within. It doesn't have to be pushed from outside. So 
those are very, very important when it comes to development of, you know, not just sports, but for, for many, many, many things that kind of growth mindset. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's a, a great little segue into something you've mentioned a couple of times, which is the praise and, and a video you shared with me this week, which confirms something I'd learned from another person we know, John O'Sullivan, is around how to praise and how yeah. to praise. And, and, and I'm sure, yes, for children, I'm sure this applies in lots of different areas as well for people of all ages. Yeah. But maybe tell us a little bit about that, about how important it is to get how you deliver praise right. Sure. You mentioned John's name, who's a good friend. He does unbelievable work. Um, he does. It was, uh, well, Dr. Carol Dweck from Stanford University. Um, she's one of the kind of pioneers in this research where she figured out through her research um, that there's, there's a major difference in just the way that you praise kids. It's very subtle, but it's very impactful. And that is, is that you've praised kids based on their intelligence or based on their effort. And when you... And amazingly enough, that subtle, subtle difference of praise has a magnitude of impact on the, on the kids. And the point is, is that kids react much better when you praise them for the effort, for the journey versus just saying like, hey, you're a really smart kid. Boy, you, you, must, you know, versus when they do good. So what they did was they, they had re- they did lots of research. And you can you can Google uh, Carol Dweck and, and we'll, a lot the, of uh, we'll put the link in in the notes okay. after. Yeah. And so basically, what they did was they administered a series of tests to kids, and then half of them they praised on intelligence. Oh wow, you must be really smart! And then the other ones, wow, you must have really worked hard. And then they realized that the kids that they were praising for intelligence, they tended to work less. They tended to not want to be challenged as much because they believe that, well, I'm smart. That's why you like me. And that's why you praise me. So I can't let you down. So I have to fulfill that, that notion and that belief that I'm so smart. Therefore, I'm going to underachieve because I don't want to disappoint. And then they, they saw that the kids that were praised for, for their effort, they kept trying harder. They enjoyed the task more. When asked to take another test, hey, you want the easy one or the difficult one? They all said, or a majority of them say, we want the difficult one. So that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge thing to if you're if you're in the business of education or teaching, or of course if you're a parent. And so now I'm much more conscious. I have little fights with my wife because my wife is, and maybe wives are a little bit more than, than, than dads are, but my wife's always praising my kids about how smart they are, how, how good looking they are, this and that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we have that battle. <laughs> One day I got so angry because she was praising my son in that way that it shouldn't be, that I, I took the computer, I put it on there, I said, watch this, Dr. Carol Dweck says. <laughs> so at least it gets us thinking and we're talking, you know, and it's a little thing, but it's a big, yeah. makes a big impact. Yeah, yeah, and actually, when when if you watch that video, which we'll put the link in there, um, the difference in their results after that, like the, like you said, the comparison, massive, like a massive golf. So we're not talking about little things here. Yeah. Um, brilliant. So I know to get to where you are now, where you are well known around the world and and sought out by confederations at the at the highest level in football, that it wasn't always like that. And what I loved is the story you shared about you had some really defining moments, one of which was you're a gifted footballer, you made it through to um, your college team at a younger age, 
and it was a college where there was a, a successful coach and people would come from all around to play in this college and no one no one locally had actually made the team. Was it in – is it ever or – No. So you're talking about, yeah, upstate New York, uh, there's a community yeah. college called Ulster County Community College. Back to, – to date myself my age, back in the late 70s, it was a perennial powerhouse, won national back-to-back championships. And most of the majority of the players came from New York City. They were immigrants, Croats, Greeks, Italians. And there were very few local players who lived in that area that played. There were a few, Dave Farrell, uh, Conrad Ernest. These are my buddies now, right? Um, yeah. Dave Jordan. But but there were very few. Um, and very few that actually got playing time, too. We kind of had the token local guys, but they didn't get on. So I actually – that was a major goal in my whole <laughs> – that was my – that's what inspired me. I wanted to play on that team. In 77, 78, back-to-back national championships, the number one draft pick for the professional league that Pele played in came from our school. So that was huge. So I I achieved that goal. I went there for two years, started and played every single game, went to the national tournament one out of the two years. But then I was offered a full scholarship at the University of Baltimore. And they brought me down. They wined and dined me there. And then I signed what's called a letter of intent. And then during the summer, I realized that really wasn't my first choice, but I had a full athletic scholarship, everything paid for. And my parents so proud, my college junior coach, everybody's happy. But then I decided I didn't want to go because I had, it's like, again, long story short, but I had spent time down in Florida as a young boy and I fell in love with the University of South Florida. I still to this day can smell, remember that freshly cut grass, that kind of, you know, Bermuda grass down there. And I used to go and practice there when I was 12 years old. And my coach came from that school, Norbert Mueller, this great player on a scholarship. But I didn't catch the interest of the University of South Florida. So I reneged on going to the University of Baltimore. My whole family thought I was nuts. My coach was angry, um, everybody. And then I took off and I went to England for a year. My, my brother was in the Air Force and he was stationed in England. I went and stayed with him and I played in the Ipswich Suffolk um, League, uh, which is which is a um, it's a, it's an amateur team, Layston FC. I'm actually in contact with that team as, even today. And then I came back. I worked all summer the next year and then I, I, I saved up some money. I sold my 10 speed bicycle and I got on a bus, a trailways bus for two days and went down to Florida and I went to the University of Florida as a walk-on and I had, and I'd taken like a student loan out. And the long story short is I went in, I got a winning, a starting position. And then I became an integral part of the team. And then later on, they offered me from the second half, a full scholarship. That's uh, my first season there. I'd scored a, a big goal in the national tournament, but yeah. And, and when I, when I look back at that, it wasn't until we talked about it the other day, that I've done a couple of other crazy things like that also, even when I was an adult and I never really figured, never really linked it to what that situation when I did with these full scholarships. So I have been willing to just rip things up and start over. I've done that a couple of times and, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but for now it's all been positive for me. Um, But I am a risk taker. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, and so much of that comes from, like, play, being a risk taker. But also, I like, want to highlight that you, you had that really clear goal as a young man you, and you wanted to make that team 
as a local person. And then I love the fact that you have that ability to go, well, everyone is expecting me to do this, which most of us, and, and me included, would have gone, well, I better do the right thing. Whereas you said, no, no, I, this is where I want to be. And you've taken that action. So I think that's a great lesson for anyone, no matter where they are at in their journey, is that you can you still get to choose. And actually, when you trust your instincts like that and go with your gut, then that's when the magic happens. And that took you on a journey that's brought you to where you are now. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, you have to be a bit of a risk taker. If, if, you, if you're not willing to lose it all, it's very difficult to be creative or be innovative or to really kind of go after that dream that it is that you want. I think that a lot of people have these dreams in their minds or even like an entrepreneur. They know they know what they want the outcome to be, but they're not quite sure how they're going to navigate it. Right. They're not really sure. And sometimes you got to paddle a little this way. Sometimes you got to paddle a little that way. And that's the life's up and downs, you know, of, of yeah. how things happen. But, uh, yeah, I have been yeah, the, the risk part. I haven't really thought about it until we started chatting the other day about it. But uh, yeah. that's kind of a hallmark of my life, to be honest with you. Fantastic. Uh, risk reward. Isan uh, says, yeah, many similar similarities with the USA and Australia uh, with the migrants and football. Absolutely. And so. Let's touch on that now because a lot of my audience is Australia and we talk about our golden generation and there's so many links there between what you talk about and why that generation happened. And it, a lot of it is because they, from migrant families, where football at home was something that was started with their parents at a really young age. So I'd love for you to just draw that link and on how that, because you've spoken to some of these footballers from that generation, right? Oh yeah, I've got I've got several friends from that generation from Australia. I've got lots of friends. I mean, I have a great affection for Australian football because my first visit was more than twenty some odd years ago, um, and so it, it's a great one of the great sporting cultures of the world. Um, but like Isan says too, it's very similar to the U.S. Right, both countries. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's funny because this golden generation. I think that. Most people haven't been able to explain why the golden generation became the golden generation. But what I what I say, and it, we, I think we were we were probably the earliest to, to try to start talking about this as well. Whereas nowadays, I mean, inside Australia, because development, you know, Australia, to be honest, ha, has stumbled a bit and they're trying to, you know, uh, um, reorganize and try to figure out okay, well, where can we do better? And it really comes down to that golden generation was the beneficiaries of exactly that. Those migrants or they, 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 or they, they immigrated to Australia, the Croats, the Greeks, the Italians, the English, the Scottish. I mean, lots of different generations that came over. And football did start at home. Football started at home um, because there was a culture in place that was very conducive to developing players. And I'm not talking about just playing. I'm talking about playing. I'm talking about watching. I'm talking about sitting around the dinner table or the lunch table um, and talking football. Uh, you're talking about, you know, a lot of these social clubs. They have that old uh, that that old fashioned or style uh, uh, like uh, community clubs um, yes. that imported from Europe. So they were they were marinated in a football culture. Now, yeah. fast forward and, you know, maybe the Croat or the Italian or the Greek has now this is 
I hope I don't get anybody angry here, but now they've kind of married the maybe the blue-eyed, blonde-haired surfer guy or girl, and that the 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 culture has become a little bit diluted when it comes to that very strong footballing culture, right? Yeah. Um, so that's why I always kind of you know I'm trying to shake the trees for the leaves to fall out and saying, listen, you know the the secret is 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 right out there in plain sight. It's the secret that's not a secret. But again, the whole thing is, is that we have been set in this way of dogma that it's only the coach and the player, the player, the coach paradigm of the traditional sense. And nobody's really understood the, the cultural piece. And I just posted yesterday on Twitter, the great player who plays in um, uh, for Tottenham Hotspurs, the uh, the Korean boy, Son. Yeah. I just posted this kid, his father trained him and his brother until they were teenagers, they didn't even play organized football. They played on no team. They didn't start playing on a team in Korea until they were like 13, 14 years of age. And what did his father focus on? Ball mastery, dribbling, passing. The last technique that he introduced was shooting. And then he wound up over in Germany at the age of 16. And I can tell you this, because I've studied it, this is what I do. I study all the great players, many of the, even the Australian players, whether it's Harry Kuehl, Raduka, all these guys, they were all beneficiaries of football starting at home. Early age development, two to five, the role that the father plays, sometimes the mothers as well. But that's the, if there's a secret sauce, it's, it's there in plain sight. And so, or it's hiding in plain sight, as I like to say, right? But yeah, that's, that's the way that I look at it. And I think for countries like Australia and other countries that are trying to develop, they've got to understand that, you know, it's not about more coaches education. It's not about more coaches. It's not about these curriculums. It's not about building more elite, you know, uh, facilities or building more elite player pathways. It's about getting the child interested in a very young age and mastering the basics. Cause if you do that, by the time a child crosses over the line into organized play, there's a bias that manifests, which is a very, very positive thing. And the experience that kid has is night and day compared to the kid who hasn't grown up in a football culture. And that's really kind of the, the, uh, the staple of what we do. And that is trying to engage parents to be able to get their kid off to a flying head start so that when they show up and they drop little Johnny or Mary off at the, at the, at the park or at the training session, that's a good experience. Because when a kid is already prepared, they're more popular, they have more fun, the coach asks them to demonstrate, so now they're getting an opportunity at leadership. There's so many positives that happen, but yet people aren't, you know, don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, um, and like uh, Isan said there, that we've hit the reset button so many times here in Australia, and then part of the problem that I see, and this is me outside of the industry, is that there's a dollar to be made. So there's a whole lot of people with the next system, and yes, but it needs to be it needs to be a business, but maybe they're not looking at what is the actual importance of development. And as as you rightly point out, we can build all these systems and pathways when they're teens, but the work has to be done from a young age if you want to be able to build the players with the skill to be able to go to that level. But also as people, right? Because of the confidence it gives them along the way by being competent. Yes. Yeah. Ab- 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 absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that I shouldn't be sounding so pessimistic because I am actually optimistic about it because 
I'm, I'm lucky and I'm fortunate to be invited into many different um, uh, stages, so to speak, to be able to talk about this. Um, but I think it's coming around. I think people are starting to to understand because, you know, you've got countries that, that are literally spending millions and millions of dollars trying to unlock that mystery on player development. And it's like they're on this endless treadmill to nowhere. And um, it's uh, it's it's I, th- I think now, especially with the, the way that the, the world is and the economy and the way that money is spent that. Yeah, and here's the great thing about football starting at home. The end user who's the parent, what do they pay? Goose eggs, nothing. <laughs> so if you think about that, it's the most scalable program that you can imagine on earth because yeah. it doesn't cost anything. You know, anywhere that we work, um, we try to defer if there's costs or resources, creating content, my time, somebody else's time. We try to defer that and basically find others to pay for that. But I am very, 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 very determined to ensure, and it's been most of my career, that the parents and the end users that I want to get to, they don't pay anything. They pay zero and it's doable. And that's what's yeah. kind of frustrating because you see about the kind of money that's thrown around in sports and you, you've got to sometimes sit there and scratch your head and think, really? <laughs> yeah. I get tingles just thinking about that. It's fantastic. I think, uh, Oh, that thought's completely gone. Um, so you were talking about the, um, the impact in and, and how you like to go out into the world. What I love is that you guys, no matter who it is, whether it's Isan doing your work here in Australia or other places, is that you build a relationship with the club, with the organisation. It's not just about, okay, here's a methodology, go and do it, and here's our academy. It's like, no, no, we want to actually come in and be part of your system. And I know for our club in particular, the relationship there, and, and I see it like when, when we've done grading and you look at the kids who have been doing your work for the whole time through their juniors, they are streets ahead of the ones who have come in late and and they're maybe only done for one or two years. So, I mean, the proof for me is there, but it's also that relationship you guys build within the community, which I think is such a positive. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we don't just tie up with anybody. We have certain value system um, where we align with people who are like minded with us. Um, We're not always chasing the money. And maybe that's sometimes my downside. If you you sit and talk to my my business partner uh, who does all my financial management, um, we, we sometimes butt heads a little bit because he's the commercial guy and he wants to make sure that things are being done properly on the financial side. But for me, I've always made decisions based on just a couple of things, you know, we're tying up with groups. I kind of go with, I read the, I read a book by Warren Buffett years ago and Warren Buffett. And I've always, I've, I've, I've held very, very true to these values. Warren Buffett was asked like, when you make a deal or you make an investment, and this is like, you know, one of the big billionaire uh, guys who invest, they said, well, what, what's the criteria? And I remember it like it was yesterday, and I live by it every day. He says, I go into every investment, doesn't matter how much money I could make. The first thing I ask is, do I like you? The guy I'm sitting across the table to, do I trust you? And do I respect you? And if one of those are off, if one of those are off, the deal's off. And I kind of, that's the way I live my life when it comes to trying to work with different organizations because, you know, reputation is everything. And especially because I work in the space of children and families. And I cannot tell you the amount of times I've been approached to try to act as a quasi agent 
to be able to try to, you know, use my influence and know-how and, and relationships with families. And I've never to this day ever taken a, a penny from doing any kind of, if I, if I think I can help someone out, I might do it. So there's certain values and certain principles that we stick by. And I think at least until now, it's served us very well. Yeah, I love that. And it comes back to your values, right? Yep. And so I think one of the real critical things that I took from our conversation the other day is, is that you make decisions based on that is in an alignment with who I am and my, my values. And, and yes, maybe you've left some money on the table, but it's not always about that. And I remember learning way back when it's the people you say no to are just as important. The people who say actually more important than the people who say yes to, because then you're going to create a, a better experience for you and for them if they're the right people and being clear that if it's not right. I can tell you this much. I've done I, every, just about everything I've done in my professional life around football development that I've been paid for, I would have done for free anyway. And, and I probably done more volunteer. I know for a fact I've given away the, the shameless plug I've <laughs> given away or my company has given away way far more books than we've ever sold. I can tell you that. And we've sold a lot. So, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's, what are you in it for? Right. And, um, and I'm in it to try to make a difference, to try to make an impact. I'm in it to try to change a world. I'm in it to try to change communities, families. Um, and, and I, I can, you know, I can go to sleep every night, wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and, and, and I'm excited every single day that I get up, I'm like a little kid. I come downstairs. I, I never sleep with the phone in my room. So I come downstairs and it's literally, it's literally like coming down to the Christmas tree to see what's under the tree every day. I swear. That's what I do. And when I get on online, different social networks, different LinkedIn, Facebook, blah, 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 there's a gem in there. Something's yeah. in there. Someone yeah. contacted me about something and that's what I get off on. I, and, and I love it. I just love it. It just keeps me, I've got, you know, I just turned, uh, I, to, I just turned 60 last week and uh, there's a saying, you know, most people my age are saying, well, I got more yesterdays than tomorrow's. No way. I got so many more tomorrow's than yesterday's and that's what keeps me going. Yeah, brilliant. When we find what it is that we would do for free and we do that, it's not like working at all, right? It's no, actually. I tell people, living here in Japan, I have been offered ridiculous amount of money. When I was on TV, I was on national TV every single day. I go out in the streets to kids. I mean, it was the, the TV show that I was casted on um, was born out of the Pokemon craze. That was the producers of Pokemon. That TV show was literally created for Pokemon. But in the beginning of it was the Tom Beyer, Tom Son Soccer Techniques Corner. So I'm on TV every single day for 14 years. And so I was offered ridiculous stuff to come and do. I mean, stupid stuff. I mean, big money for small groups, but that doesn't fit in my values this, this scheme. I want to, I, I'm always the kind of guy, I want to be up on the highest mountaintop speaking with the biggest megaphone to as many people. And I've literally turned down big amounts of money to show up to some crazy little thing for 20, 30 people. And I've turned that down and I've gone with the, I pay my own way to take the bullet train down to Osaka or Kobe because I can get in front of a thousand kids or 500 kids. I do that every time. And to this day, I would still do that because that's what turns me on. That's what gets me excited. I'm a performer in certain ways, or I was before. Yeah. 
when yeah. I was doing it. And, you know, I just, I thrive off of that kind of live event where, where I can interact and I can see the faces on the kids. And when I'm saying or doing something, you can get that feedback and you can see that your understanding is taking place and there's no better feeling than that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I got to meet you face to face at a community event. I think you were, were you meant to be in Australia earlier this year. I was. I was. Yeah. The guys were going to bring me down. I think it was after I made my first and only overseas trip to the United States. That was, I was gone for about a month, January, February. I came back, recharged the, I remember being on the phone calls with the guys and saying, Hey guys, I don't have a good feeling about this. Cause I could have done the trip, but I might've got stuck, stuck down there. You know, it was really touch and go at the time. And then we, decided to nix it not thinking that what was going to happen has happened you know yeah. everybody grounded for like a year but yeah. you know, it, it is what it is so tom what have you learned about yourself on this journey so you've gone out of your way because you're wanting to help so many people and you're so passionate about what it is that you do and yeah, what have you learned about you well you know i'm a very driven person um Sometimes yeah, that old saying, I, I fly by the seat of my pants. Um, I, I, you know, so there's, there's lots of things. I mean, you know, lots of pluses, lots of minuses. If, if, I, if I had a do-over again, would I do certain things different? Yeah, probably some things. But for the most part, I'm pretty satisfied with what I've been doing. You know, w- what I'm involved with even today, it's been a process. There's, there's, there's no one single thing that I can identify that has gotten to me to where I, I am now. It's a culmination of many things. Very lucky, you know, um, luck in certain ways, but persistent in other ways as well. Um, and, and persistence has a lot to do with life. There's many, many times I could have given up. There's many times that I've walked down dead ends. There's times I've showed up to meetings where nobody shows up or I've been disappointed. I've been told no many, many times. But I could also spin it the other way and, and wonderful things have happened to me as well. But I think that at the end of the day, you just have to you have to realize, you know, does this fit in with with my overall goals, where I'm trying to get to? Am I am I am I happy and am I at peace with what I'm doing? And, you know, it's, it sounds cliche, but it's that old uh, old saying or, or feeling is that, you know, when when my when I'm when I'm done on this earth, will I have left the world a little bit different and had made some mark. And I hope that we, we have, and, and again, still continuing to do that as well. But I think it's also self-reflection. People need to sit back and take time out and review how have things gone? Where, where is it that I can make some change? How can I tweak some things to go towards my goals? You've got short-term goals, you've got medium-term goals, and you've got the long-term goals, right? And so I wish, again, there's many cliches, right? It's like, well, if I knew back then what I know today, yeah, of course, everybody, that's knowledge, right? But when you get the knowledge and can you actually put it into practical use? And that's what's interesting. And and the biggest thing for me has been is that getting, you know, being fortunate and lucky enough to, to have caught the attention of a guy like Dr. John Rady from Harvard Medical School. I mean, this man is brilliant. I've learned more from him than just about any the, the the biggest pieces of that development football development that you know that that hole so to speak it started to get filled up and I started to think in a completely different direction 
a completely different direction. Because it makes sense. If you get a child from a very young age that has success very early, and I remember one day I was talking to Dr. John Rady, and he, 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 he raised his voice with me a little bit, and he goes, Tom, you don't understand. He goes, I'm not really interested in developing soccer players. But when a child has mastered a skill by the age of five or six years old, and they can yell out, Mommy, Daddy, I did it, that's empowerment. And he's right. And he says they take that into the classroom to take a math test or a science test. And so I, I, I basically had these blinders on only thinking on railroad tracks about improving a kid's technical ability and making them a good soccer player. But then my whole world started to open up. And, you know, that's a great thing when you when you feel like you're really learning something new. And, and literally every time you learn something new. Your brain physically changes. It physically changes. As soon as a new piece of information, knowledge comes into your brain, it changes the brain. But here's, here's the, the important part, is that the more repetition you do, the more it hardwires it. And there's a, there's a saying in neuroscience that is that cells that fire together, they wire together. And that is the brilliance in the football starts at home because, and I know I'm I'm, diver I'm diversing into a, a whole nother field here, but I wanted to get this point in. The reason that this program is so important and why it's caught the attention of a, a brilliant person such as Dr. John Rady is because of the brain. The cerebellum is the, is the part of the brain that is responsible, what the neuroscience world thought was responsible for what they call executive motor skills functions. So ball mastery, playing with the ball, foot, right, left, that, that's basically exercising the cerebellum. But again, here's the gift to the parents. And that is, is that the cerebellum has most recently been, been found out to, to be responsible for much more. It's responsible for thinking, remembering, which is memory, controlling emotions, okay? Decision-making, reading, single-digit mathematical numeracy. Um, so it's got this huge implications for learning. So that's why we've got research going on with some of the top researchers in the world that are basically looking at this. And that's, that's, that's unbelievable. This could potentially even change the football world and the way that we look at it. So, yeah, you know, just, I guess my, my, my big thing is that people, you just never stop learning. And that's the thing that I really, really have learned is that, you know, and my, might be, be being here in Japan too, where there's more of a Buddhist culture, where it's more about the journey you haven't quite ever. Japanese never think that they've ever arrived. And, and the problem with that is, is that they can never relax. They can never put their, let their hair down because they're always trying. They're always trying to become better. And it's a wonderful Japanese trait. But sometimes you have to sit back and say, OK, well, you know, do some reflection. But that's kind of a, a lot of influence on my Jap Japan story too, being here for 35 plus years. Yeah, love it. So through all of this, you've had so many wins and so many things that have unfolded for you, but you must have also had some real battles at times, like through your football, but also through starting this business. And so could you could you look at maybe one or two of those examples that you can remember just where things got really difficult and how, how you were able to, to navigate through that with faith that you believed in what you were doing so much that you knew that you were going to come out the other side? Sure. Well, I've had lots of setbacks, some physical, broke my collarbone playing. I broke my three ribs. I broke my finger. 
I've had three knee operations. So I've been through all that. I've been through that. I've that's probably pretty common for people involved professionally in sports. Um, yeah. Business-wise as well, I remember there were days when I was completely destitute, didn't have a penny to my name. I'd walk around and, and, and shake out. And this is why I'm living in Japan, shaking my jeans to see if coins pop out. Um, but I've always been blessed. I've, there's always been a big guy or somebody looking after me, and, and it's always, always worked out. My biggest, probably in my professional business career, was my old company um, that I was one of the founders of. Um, I walked away from. And I walked away from that at a period when I had just got married. I had just built a house, and I had just had, we had had our first son. And I wound up leaving, and a lot of people thought I was nuts. And it wasn't really until recently we started talking about my, my when I was younger, when I walked away from the scholarship, but this was similar. I got up one day, and I thought this is not the right fit for me. I had been working there for 15 years. My values were not, their values were not aligned with what my values were. Um, I had some trust issues, respect issues. A lot of things were, were as I, I talked about earlier, so I basically, um, basically quit and I'd been there for 15 years. So my salary was more than 50% cut and it's not something you usually want to do when you get married and come home and say, Hey honey, I just quit my job, but I did that. And I had to really go through and reinvent myself. And I did. And that, those were some very tough, dark times too. the first couple of years, because there was a lot of speculation around why I left as well. And so that was probably my toughest time. But if I had not done that, football starts at home would not even be a phrase. It would be nothing. And so in hindsight or looking now, the glass half full, I made the right choice. Was it a difficult one? Sure was very difficult, um, but I did it. And sometimes you just have to throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm finished and do something else. So that's probably the biggest, biggest uh, challenge that, that I had. So, you know, for financially, um, for, for, for several years, it was very, very tough. Um, but again, like I said, I, I also, I spent a huge amount of time building up my profile, my reputation here in Japan. And the, although I'm living here in Japan, my kids are here, my family, kids are in school. I basically set out to start working outside Japan. So for several years, I did literally almost no, no activities or business here in Japan because I started working in China. I started working in Australia. I started working in Indonesia. I started being invited to India, Malaysia, Nepal, um, all around Asia. And then I started being going out into Europe. I was invited. And then and a lot of things started to happen. But again, if I hadn't had stepped out of my comfort zone, I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I'm doing now. And I'm still achieving. I still feel like we're just, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much, much, much more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the message to everybody is, is that in life, you're going to have some, you know, you're going to have the, the mountains and you're going to have the valleys. And there's no there's no straight line to success. It's the journey. And it's really you know, that old saying, the old, you know, the fittest survive, but it's really about perseverance because I know there's a lot of smarter people in the world than I am, but I will, I will outwork them. Okay. I'm more persistent. I don't give up. 
um, and I'm focused when it when it comes to what it is that I want to try to to achieve. So, you know, again, if I if I had known that when I was a little bit younger, that would have been great. Um, but again, you know, I feel like still there's lots more tomorrows than there are yesterdays. Excellent. We we talked the other day about you because you mentioned just earlier about you standing on that mountain and you want to be sharing your message and I, and we were talking about how so many people are they're standing on a mountain too of knowledge and from their own experience and they don't necessarily see how valuable they are so yes you do the work that you do around football and and development but what is it that you bring to the table tom like what is it about you that actually you know has been so beneficial for not just your business but for all parts of life yeah, I think it's the journey, it's the experience, it's the interpretation of those experiences. Um, it's lots of things. Again, I don't think it's just one. I think it's a process. Sometimes I've wanted to speed the process up where I haven't been able to do it, um, and it has to play out. And so you have to become much more patient. You have to never lose sight of the bigger picture of the goal that you're actually trying to get to but it takes many, many little incremental steps. Everybody wants that big giant leap forward, but it very rarely happens. It very rarely happens in business or in your, your professional or family life. So you have to be, you have to be patient. You have to be organized. Um, and those are the lessons that, um, that I'm, I'm learning, you know, as I get older. Um, and again, I think that sometimes, uh, you know, rarely on occasion you get these kind of, these these people whether it's a man or women and they 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 just it's a breakthrough they they get some they they get success really really early and i think it's those people that for somehow it came together for them earlier than it did for most but i think a lot of people my age or up around my age we start to st start to figure things out because of all the life experiences that we've had um and then you're ready to 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 do it like right now even this whole football starts at home thing now i mean Every single day, I'm on these calls with like some of the, the brightest and the, and the most intelligent educators on the planet. And I've got, I've, I'm literally, I, I just take heaps of notes, man. I'm just, I'm learning. And, and often I'm on those calls because they're trying to learn from me. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm getting way more out of them than they're getting out of me. <laughs> to say, well, you have to have that kind of attitude, right? You never stop learning. And there's always something that you can pick up some little, you know, nugget of wisdom that's in there, but you got to know where to look for it and you got to see how to apply it. You know, knowledge is great, but if you don't know how to use it um, in a practical way, it's, 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 it's rendered useless, right? So it's really all of those things. And, and I've got a slide in my presentation from Steve Jobs that says, you know, you can only connect the dots uh, by looking backwards, not forwards. And I think that's what I've been able to do is, is, is take what I've done in the past and now try to do something even more extraordinary. Yeah. And I love that. So having that, that big picture vision, you need to have that, but you also need to remember that it's incremental steps. There's no, there's no zero to a hundred in three seconds. It's actually going, okay, that's where I want to go. And as you said earlier, paddle this way, paddle that way, but you're still heading towards that, uh, to that goal. And, and, and I think that's the challenge for many people because the, you do become very impatient. Um, you know, some people need to get to tomorrow today. Um, and, and, and that's, and, and the other thing too, is I've learned is, is that not to look too far in the past, 
you know, try to keep it current, try to keep it in the future. As soon as you start waking up, and we've talked about this before too, is that I'm into kind of this studying of this mindfulness too as well, of really trying to live in the moment. Because as soon as you start daydreaming and you, 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 your subconscious takes over that program in the back of your mind, which is doubting and am I doing the right thing? And, and you get this fear based on your past history. You're living in the past and nothing really comes into your future if you're living in the past constantly. Right? So you, you, I, I think that if I, the mindfulness piece has, has been very good for me. I sit down and I sometimes just sit in a chair for 30 minutes or 40 minutes and just try to clear my, my, my mind and empty it. And that's where the creativity and the innovation comes in is when you can basically silence the noise that's in your life and you can sit down and you can start reflecting. Um, and that's a very, very powerful uh, thing to have is being able to understand your thoughts and trying to keep them positive. And again, so those are some of the little kind of nuggets of wisdom that that I've gained, even of recent. Um, but again, you can always keep learning and trying to better yourself every day. Yeah, it is true that space provides innovation. It also provides something you mentioned before, focus, right? Yes. Like when, when we have that, we allow ourselves that space. In, and most people are running around with quite a busy life. Well, well, people don't realize if you study a little psychology, like I've immersed myself in the last several years, is that, you know, more than like 85, 90% of your everything you do is a subconscious program. Many people don't get to that state of mindfulness. And mindfulness is really when you're living in the moment, you're very focused in and you don't have that little tape recorder of thinking about passing. It's like daydreaming. It's like sleepwalking. And, you know, 75 or 80 percent of the thoughts that a, a human being has, many of them are the same thoughts that they had yesterday. So it's this continuing dialogue that goes yep. over and over and over again. So, again, that's in personal development. So I, I, that's kind of, you know my whole world in life is football development and what I'm doing, but my, my hobby, if you could call it is, uh, is more the psychology. I'm fascinated about the way the mind works and the brain and the body and the mind and that whole kind of, you know, connection behind it. And that's what I spend when I'm not off trying to, uh, to figure out new things with football starts at home. I'm usually, uh, reading or, or, or immersed in this kind of, uh, psychology stuff. So it's fascinating. It is, and, and it's what's even more fascinating is how that's now organically grown into the work that you do in football. And- it, it does, it does, and, and, and I, I really do apply some of these things too and try to teach parents how do we learn? How do kids learn so that they know? And one of the biggest things that I can impart to parents is from a very young age, and this is what ball mastery does, it teaches a child how to pay attention. So when you pay attention, when you pay attention, you're literally hardwiring the neural pathways. That's how learning takes place. Everything you learn, whether it's a mental task or a physical task, is stored in the cerebellum. That's the seat of the unconscious brain. So when you teach a young child to pay attention, right foot, left foot, they're doing calm. They're basically, their behavior, their emotions are being turned down. That has wonders for the brain. It makes the brain work in a more cohesive manner, a more smooth manner, and it makes learning more possible. 
And as soon as a child isn't paying attention, that means that they are accessing different neural pathways in their, in their brain. So learning and memorization doesn't take place. And so that's why it's very important to teach. And, 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 you know, if you're skilled at it, like, you know, I've done thousands of events for literally hundreds of thousands of kids. I can usually tell if I go onto a football pitch and there's a, a, lots of kids there, I'm telling you, I can usually pick out who the best players are going to be at those ages. Like I'm talking six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, that from that space, that's, that's my, my specialty there. And the reason is, is because I know, the, the amount of discipline, focus, concentration, all of that, that it, that, it, that, it, that it takes to become a good player. And it just screams that you can see those kids. You can just see the ones that pay attention. I was talking with the, I work with the Houston Dynamo from Major League Soccer, and I was talking with my buddy, Paul Holler, who's the, um, the, uh, the academy director. And he said it too. He said, you know what? The best kids in our academy, when I speak to them, I can tell they're paying attention much better than the other kids. And that's a byproduct of it. So if you understand that, these are parts of the these are parts of the, the, the development of the puzzle, because what I tell federations when I'm uh, advising them is, is that football alone can't stand on its own two feet. I can't hear in Asia where Asian families look at sports as a distraction to education. So they keep the kids limited. I can't go and try to convince a family to just have their kids start playing football because football's great. They won't. Some will, but many won't. But now we've got other tools in our toolbox and we can say, okay, if you're, if your kid starts our program and you start working with a kid with ball mastery, they will be better thinkers, more focused. They will pay attention better. They'll be less disciplinary. They have better memory. It all comes together. And that's powerful. Because parents want that and parents do that. So I tell the football world that we have to do a better job of promoting the sport and not just football. This is all sports across the board. I think that's why we've been embraced by educators um, from top universities. And also I work with school districts as well. And the educators have really, really wrapped their arms around our program because they're seeing the difference and they're seeing the effect that it's having on their kids. And that's very important. I love it. The one thing that really sort of struck a chord with, with me is that you're talking about when they're young and they're, and they're doing that work, it's mindfulness, football yeah. mindfulness. They're actually being able just to quieten, get that focus. They have the ability to innovate when they're manipulating the ball. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, well, you know, what happens is, is the, the way that we learn. First knowledge, something new comes in, so it literally changes the, the brain. Hands-on practice or training. Now you're moving the body and the and the mind are, are are working together. They're paying attention, so they have to know what they're doing. And then the fourth is the repetition. That's how learning takes place, because it hardwires the neural pathways. Now, for football or for ball mastery, the feet are the furthest distance from the brain, so we very rarely have any opportunities to build those neural pathways. But ball mastery does it. So it's literally. When a child is, is, is exercising with a ball at their feet, especially two, three, four, five, six years of age, okay, they're laying down those neural pathways. The repetition is hardwiring that. So what happens is, is that, and I saw this with my own kids. I saw this with my own kids. I could see that my kids could do things in the living room that you can't imagine. I could see them going out and doing it 
out in the, in the backyard or wherever. I could see them doing it at their practice, but sometimes it, they wouldn't be doing it in the games. And there's a lot of reasons why some of them, it's, it's almost like having superpowers, you know, it's like you think of like, like these super, super um, characters, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and they're hiding what it is they can do. And I found, I'm, I'm not kidding you. And, and, and so they've got this memory, they've got this ability, but certain kids are very shy and it doesn't come out. But with both my kids, it came out and there was a turning point. And then they started to realize self-awareness. They started to realize what was possible. And it is unbelievable to see it. I'm going through it with my second, my, um, my youngest boy right now. The kid's so good technically, but sometimes he's just not using it in the game. But now it started to come out. So it's not because he didn't have the ability. He just wasn't accessing it. But it's stored in the brain. It's memory. And all of that, you know, repeated repetition of hardwiring and firing and wiring those nerve cells, they're, they're in there. It's like riding a bicycle. It's like learning how to crochet. It's like learning how to do anything, whether it's a mental task or a physical test, it's all stored in the cerebellum. And this is, this is fascinating to me to see it play out. So it's not that I just talk about it. I know it because I'm seeing it and I'm doing it with my own kids and then you know, connecting tons and tons of other dots. Amazing. Um, I think that's a great place to finish. I, I would just include that if you're sitting there watching it going, okay, this is all about kids, but if you, if it's football or you want to apply what Tom's talked about in any area, it does, it has the same impact. So I've started using these skills at a much later age and it has the same effect. It gives you more confidence. It allows you to go and do different things. So this is, yes, absolutely. At quite a young age, it has the biggest impact. But you haven't missed the boat if you're a parent and you're thinking, well, I, I need to do things differently. You can pick these strategies up from, from now and, and the learning will take place. It may take a little bit longer, but it still has an impact even through the adult years, right? Yeah, it's patience, right? Like I said, patience, perseverance. But you have to know the biggest thing in parting that is what I want parents to, to, to know and why I engage them is because most parents don't know what development looks like. They have no idea. So they get very frustrated, especially in Australia and America where it's the pay to play model. So they're paying thousands of bucks. They're sitting on the sidelines. They're frustrated. They're yelling at the kids because they're not seeing the development because they don't know what development looks like. So you don't get these problems as much in a lot of the countries that have advanced football cultures. You don't get the crazy parents, that stereotype of them screaming and yelling and yelling at the coach and this and that. The coach can only do so much. And that's the other part. I've seen kids, like, for example, my own kids, right? They cross over the line into organized play. They're already technically wizards. They have confidence. They're competent. They can stop, start, turn, change direction of the ball. They can protect the ball. Even paired with the inexperienced parent coach, that kid develops. I've also seen kids that are with the best coaches you can imagine that don't develop at all because the baseline, it's the baseline, man. And that's what so, you know, you can see whenever I, I and, and the one thing that, that I love about my, what I'm doing is, is that whether I'm sitting here talking to Ian Hawkins or I'm talking to the academy director invited to Ajax in Amsterdam or wherever I am, I present with the same intensity because I'm just, I just believe in it. And, and, and I'm, I'm so 
you know, dedicated to try to get this out to as many families as possible because it's not just going to help the game. It helps even the family, the dynamics. I've had families come up to me, a father say, say to me, I mean, I get this feedback that's ridiculous. I get mail from people that are, you know, they read our book or they, they saw an interview or even an interview like this, and it, it transforms their family because now you've got families who have never played the sport, and I could show you kids that are just as good or better than my kids from parents that have done this whole philosophy who have never played football, never played before in life. And that's powerful, man. That's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. As you just said, your, your passion just shines out. And I know there's going to be bigger things ahead for, for all this research that's happening. And, and yes, in the football world, but, but the impact that can have on, on people for generations. So fantastic. And thank you for sharing so openly today, Tom. Yeah, no, it was great. And uh, thank you for all of your, um, your preparation that you did for this, this chat as well, because uh, that's important. I think, uh, I think you, you've definitely drawn out. This could be one of the, uh, the, be the best interviews for 2020. Uh, so thank you for your preparation and your professionalism. And I really appreciate the chat and the friendship as well. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, and I very much enjoy that and appreciate that too. Thanks, Tom. See, see you next week, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.